0: Well, good morning. Good morning from me. And let me add my welcome to all of you from that which has already been given, not least if you're new. hope you're having a great time with us. And if you are new, as you have heard from Abby, we've just started uh, this new series called Ask London. We're in week two. And really our desire as a church uh, has been to listen to and engage with... Uh, questions and objections that our friends and family have and so to that end we've asked our friends and family exactly that and have received uh, some videos and we've been able to compile the videos into different topics. Last week we looked at is there any evidence for God and that whole question and uh, let's roll the video for this week and we'll see what we're looking at today. A lot of my issues with it are down to what I conceive uh, to be hypocrisy within the religion. Stop preaching. If you've sinned, you can find a way of making the Bible fit that sin, so you can wash away your sins. And yet other parts of the Bible are absolutely non-negotiable. Um, to the extent where there is a lot of judgment cast on certain parts of society and um, parts of your family, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to acknowledge that people are individuals. One of my problems with the Christian God is the people who are telling me about it constantly. Going to church may, it doesn't make you a Christian. And in my own life, I've seen lots of people who are religious doing things that I don't think are fair or right or generous. They purport to believe these, these you know, high moral pillars uh, from the religious text, but they don't seem to actually really live it out. It's the perception of people is that if you are going to church, you're automatically going to be a good Christian. I don't feel that's necessarily the case. They're in a real minority Christians who, who have strong faith and will accept other people and understand and empathise and genuinely spread love. They seem to be in the minority. So stop preaching, yes. Don't tell us about it. Don't tell us how to behave. Just behave and then maybe we'll want to do the same thing. Okay, well firstly just to repeat what I said last week, we're really grateful to the people that have taken the trouble uh, and I guess have had the courage really to put their uh, faces to video and articulate their questions and objections. We're really grateful to those people and indeed if you're here this morning particularly as somebody who's come along and maybe as a a guest and you want to engage with this question then thank you for coming and uh, I do hope it's going to be helpful for you. So I guess you'd have heard what the objection is, it would have come through, I think, fairly clearly. The objection to the Christian gods, to the Christian faith, is Christians. That, I think, is what was coming through fairly clearly. Specifically, Christians that are judgmental about other people's behavior, and Christians whose own behavior is hypocritical. I think they were the two strands coming through. And when it comes to that charge, that Christians can be judgmental hypocrites, the answer to the charge, alas, is Guilty as charged. That can often and has often been the case. Just um, the other week I was walking down the aisle at the supermarket, as you do, and I observed uh, a mum who was out shopping with her, her little child, it must have been kind of four or five. Probably fair to say that the child was, was quite overweight. And I observed a couple of things. I observed firstly this, this mum uh, really losing her rag and shouting at her child. And the second thing I observed was that a few moments later, the mum put quite a bit of, I guess, what you call junk food into her shopping trolley. At which point, I've got to say, a couple of thoughts went through my mind. (laughs) The first one was, if I was a parent, I wouldn't discipline like that. And the second one was, no wonder your child's a bit overweight for putting all that junk food into your trolley. And I kind of thought, thought about that afterwards, and I thought, well, hang on a minute, I don't, I don't know that lady, I don't know that child, I don't know anything about their lives, I'm not even a parent, I don't know what it's like at all. And yet I felt I was able to make, internally at least, those kinds of judgmental comments. And what's more, I was probably being pretty hypocritical as well, because as far as I understand it, there's probably not a a parent on the planet who hasn't at some point lost their temper with their child. So if I was to be a parent, presumably I would one day do the same thing, therefore prove myself to be a bit of a hypocrite. My suggestion is that inside every Christian, there lurks the potential at least to judgmentalism and to hypocrisy. And tragically, the tragedy is that many people, many, many people have been put off the Christian faith, not by the message of the Christian faith, but by those who purport to proclaim it. Many people have been hurt, often very badly, by Christians, by the church. Christians, for example, who they thought they could trust, who turned out to betray that trust. Christians who, on the one hand, sang about love and then spoke words of condemnation. Christians who claimed to be giving money away and were actually embezzling money for themselves. Christians who commanded sexual purity very forcefully and turned out to be sexual abusers. Or Christians who bemoan the state of the nation and then do virtually nothing to lovingly engage with the nation. So, what I want to do this morning is just look at those two strands in turn, judgmental Christians and hypocritical Christians, and try and dig beneath what lies beneath the objection and beneath the reality of the objection. And then, thirdly, try and see if there's a way forward. Okay, so judgmental Christians, hypocritical Christians, and then let's see whether there's a way forward from those objections. Number one, judgmental Christians. I want to leave this on three quick steps, which I hope will help us to dig underneath. This objection and get really to the core of it so we can suggest a way forward. Firstly, I'm assuming that we're not objecting to the principle per se of anyone making a judgment about what is right or wrong. I'm assuming that's the case. As we discussed last week, if you were here or you caught up on the podcast, all of us, I think, are very clear deep down that certain things are absolutely right or wrong. Even if we say that we believe that every person has the right to choose what's right or wrong for themselves, I'm not sure whether deep down we actually live like we believe that's true. So, for example, in Saudi Arabia, the authorities are very clear that it is wrong for women to drive a car. And I think many of us would say, it doesn't really matter what the authorities think is right. We strongly believe that to be wrong. And furthermore, some people would go as far as saying we should exclude Saudi Arabia from certain aspects of international relations or trade because they are so wrong. So I'm not sure we can object in principle to the idea of Christians making a judgment in the sense of discerning what might be right or wrong of someone's actions because I think all of us do that at some point. Second step linked into the objection about Christians being judgmental is, I think, an objection that the church can be exclusive, that part of having certain moral beliefs makes it an exclusive community. And the question kind of goes along the lines of, why do you have certain specific moral beliefs? Because that just leaves people feeling excluded or, or marginalized. It leaves them feeling less than the individual that they are. And I think we, we heard something of that coming through in the video. And to extend that argument, it's kind of the idea that as long as everyone respects the privacy and the rights of others to uh, to work for equal access of opportunities and fairness, if we do that, that's really all we need to have a, a truly inclusive community. But that strikes me as being a slight oversimplification because every community, even in a, a liberal democracy, is based on a shared set of very particular beliefs. So in our Western liberal society, democracy, we have a very relatively clear shared set of commitments. For example, to reason and to rights and to justice. And they're all embedded in a particular shared set of values which isn't universally shared by everyone else. So the idea of a totally inclusive community, I would suggest is an illusion. There's always some set of shared beliefs that necessarily create boundaries. Let me give you an example. Imagine you have two friends. i sure you do have two friends. Imagine one of them sits on the board of Stonewall, which is the organisation community that campaigns and lobbies for equal rights for the LGBT community. Imagine you have a second friend, and they sit on the board of the Coalition for Marriage, which is an organisation which lobbies on behalf of the defence of traditional marriage. So you've got quite an eclectic group of friends. And imagine that your first friend who sits on the board of Stonewall one day says, I've had a religious experience and I now believe homosexuality to be wrong. And then your other friend the same week says, who sits on the board of the Coalition for Marriage, says, my son is gay and I believe he has the right to marry his partner. And both of them continue to make these assertions relatively persistently. No matter how uh, gracious or flexible the various board members of each organisation might be, eventually there will come a point where both organisations will say to your two friends, I'm sorry but you need to step down from the board because we no no longer have a shared set of commitments. Now interestingly, one of the organisations has a reputation for being inclusive and one has a reputation for being exclusive. But in reality, in practice, they both operate in very much the same way. That's how communities work. Any community that didn't hold its members accountable for specific beliefs and practices would kind of cease to have any sense of corporate identity, would cease to really be a community at all. So therefore, I guess that begs the question, how do we judge a community, like a church, a group of Christians? How do we find out whether it is open and caring or narrow and oppressive? If we're not going to say it simply believes different things, how do we do that? Well, at this point, I want to recommend a a book to you. It's a book called The Reason for God by uh, an author and church leader in New York called Tim Keller. If you're interested in exploring these things, if you're of a sceptical disposition, I think you'll find this helpful. I think it will engage your mind. I really recommend it as a way of exploring some of the contentious claims of the Christian faith. And In this book, Keller addresses the same question. So he asks the same thing: If we're not going to simply uh, hold, the, we're not going to exclude the church by holding different moral beliefs. How do we assess a community to see whether it's open and caring or narrow and oppressive? And he says this: Here is a far better set of tests. Which community has beliefs that lead its members to treat people in other communities with love and respect, to serve them and meet their needs? Which community's beliefs lead it to demonize and attack those who violate their boundaries rather than treating them with kindness, humility, and winsomeness? He goes on to say, We should criticize Christians when they are condemning and ungracious to those who don't believe. But we should not criticize churches when they maintain standards for membership in accord with their beliefs. Every community must do the same. So what's he saying? He's saying the way to assess any community, including a group of Christians, is not to examine whether they hold different beliefs to you. It's to see how those beliefs lead them to treat other people, different people. And the reality is that both the scenarios that Keller suggests for how churches have behaved has been the case. So churches have behaved towards other groups with love and kindness and respect and humility, as he urges and churches have behaved in a condemning and ungracious manner, as he also says. And when it comes to the, the first category, I think he's putting quite a compelling vision in front of us as a church. And I know there's a desire here for us to be, if you like, doing more of that. Less invite, expecting people to come to us and more looking to see how we can move out and engage with others. And wouldn't it be amazing if in years to come, if people said to the council or a local community group, if they commented on King's Church and the response was, oh yeah, King's Church. Yeah, they're the guys that that make sure loads of our looked-after children are fostered. I know King's Church. Or if they said, oh, King's Church, yeah, they're the guys that mean that our ageing and increasingly lonely population get visited from time to time. Oh, King's Church, yeah, they're the ones that are helping to alleviate the homelessness problem in, in Kingston and in the borough. Oh, King's Church, they're the ones that mean that we have more good school places. Now, I think some of those things are happening and bubbling, and that's wonderful. And also, no, there's a, an increased desire, an increased bubbling desire in the church for more of that to happen. I think it's a compelling vision that Keller puts in front of the church to move out and engage with all kinds of groups. But I think he also hits upon the kind of judging that we really do mean when we object to judgmental Christians. He talks about things that happen in a condemning and ungracious manner. He's not talking about holding a view about what's right or wrong. We've already established that all of us do that. He's not talking about forming a community that holds these beliefs in common. We said that all communities do that. What he's hitting on is Christians or churches that are condemning and ungracious, to quote him. He's getting at religious self-righteousness. An attitude from Christians that exudes moral superiority. And he's right, we absolutely should condemn that kind of judgmentalism. And as Christians, we need to have integrity, don't we? to, To examine ourselves. And to see, if you want to use my example, whether those supermarket moments look under the surface as they did for me. Now, it's interesting that the impression given is that this criticism of the judgmental side of Christianity, which is an appropriate criticism, the perception is that that's a new idea that society has advanced into the late 20th century, early 21st century, and we've now advanced to such a stage that we can pick the holes in Christianity, and this is one of them. I'm not sure that's the case. I think the most compelling, best critique of self-righteous judging and condemning comes from Christianity itself. You only have to read what Jesus had to say. He was incredibly clear what he thought about these things. So In Luke chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus said, speaking to very religious people, he said, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned. Can you see how he's, he's diagnosing religious judgmentalism that condemns? That's what he's getting at. And he knew that the religious elite were able to ascribe value to themselves by devaluing others. He knew that they were able through their moral performance to increase their own sense of value and to decrease others. Reducing someone else's value in order to promote their own. And Jesus called them out on it time and time again. Point blank in Luke 11 a few chapters later. Speaking to the religious people, he says, you may look impressive, but deep inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Strong words for religious, self-righteous judgmentalism. Later, in the same chapter, he says, you load people down with heavy burdens that they can hardly carry, and you don't lift a finger to help them. And he continually called out the religious folk for their self-righteous, condemning, judgmental attitude, and he kept doing so until they killed him for it. As the theologian Karl Barth once said, it wasn't the world that killed Christ, it was the church. Jesus is not surprised that many people, many of you perhaps, object to judgmental, condemning Christians because he did too. And neither is he surprised that we object to hypocritical Christians. It's number two, hypocritical Christians. I heard a story, I sense it may be apocryphal, but I heard a story recently of a pastor, a church pastor, who was walking down the street and he saw a group of 10, 11, 12-year-old boys, a whole gaggle of them, talking really excitedly and animatedly surrounding a dog. And as their church pastor approached, he was a little bit concerned for the dog, so he stopped and asked the boys what they were doing. And one of the 11-year-old boys piped up and said, well, it's a stray dog from around here, and all of us really want to take him home. We want to keep him, but only one of us can take him home, so we're having a competition. And the pastor is quite intrigued. And he said, well, what, what competition are you having? And the little boy piped up and said, we're having a competition to see who can tell the biggest lie. And whoever can tell the biggest lie, they can take the dog home. And this pastor is absolutely aghast. He can't have a competition about lying. And he launches into this 10-minute tirade, beginning with, don't you know that lying is a sin? And ending with, when I was your age, I never told a lie. A few moments passed, long pause, passed the thought, maybe I'm getting through to these boys. Eventually the youngest little boy let out a long sigh, looked at his mates and said, all right, give him the dog. (laughs) I think all of us can spot hypocrisy a mile off, can smell it a mile off, and most of us want nothing to do with it. Most of us want nothing to do with it, especially religious hypocrisy. So let's just dig into this term a bit more and try and do what we did with judgmentalism and get to the heart of it, get to the core of it, and then we can see what the way forward is. Again, three steps to try and get to the core of Christian hypocrisy. First step. Presumably, we're not saying, we're not objecting to Christians who simply make mistakes, Or Christians with character flaws. I'm assuming that's not the objection that we're making, because people often very reasonably will say, "I I know lots of non-Christians who are far more moral and, frankly, more pleasant to be around than Christians. So why should I explore Christianity?" And I say, "Well, I I know I know Sally. She's a Christian, and frankly, she's a bit of a gossip. And I know Anna, and she's not a Christian, and, and she's not a gossip." It's not an unreasonable objection, but I think a further question to ask is where is Sally on her journey of being a Christian? What was she like a year ago? In fact, what's her background like? Has there been any change in her life since she's become a Christian? Perhaps Sally comes from a really tough background. Ultimately, our background forms a huge part of our character and our ability to, to associate and attach with society and behave morally and so on. In fact, that's happening in the first three, four years of our lives. So what kind of background did Sally have? Maybe her background was marked by insecurity and shame. And, and that's what prompts all kinds of things. And perhaps if she's become a Christian, then some of those results of insecurity and shame have, have gone away. And, and others are improving. And some, like gossip aren't showing much sign of change. Does that make her a hypocrite? If she's committed to confessing her weaknesses and asking and trusting God to change her as an expression of his love for her, does that make her a hypocrite? Someone once said that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's entirely appropriate, isn't it, that the church should be full of all kinds of people who say, I am so far from being perfect I'm trusting God to change me. I'm trusting God to make me a bit more like his son Jesus over time. Now, this doesn't get Christian hypocrites and all the damage they've caused off the hook. But I think what it does do is get us one step closer to a more precise definition of what we mean. The second thing I don't think we mean by hypocrisy is the suggestion that only Christians can be hypocrites. I'm not sure we believe that. Surely, all people of all worldviews and belief systems are hypocrites to some extent. Let me show you what I mean. The the famous philosopher called Francis Schaeffer, I think, gave a really good illustration to prove that point, even if it does feel contentious. He says, imagine if you were born with like a voice recording little chip implanted into you. And this voice recorder is uniquely able to record every time you say something like, you should... Or you ought. It records your moral standards for other people. And then Schaefer says, when you get to the end of your life and the voice recording is played back to you, could you honestly say that you lived up to the standards that you had for other people? So if I think about all the times where I have said something like or words to the effect of, you should be patient. You ought to be kind. You should be generous. And I've not been kind or generous or patient. Or I think of the times where I said, you ought not to lie, or you shouldn't belittle someone else. And the times where I have done those things. Schaefer's point is, never mind God's moral law, none of us can escape, none of us can escape being hypocrites in light of our own moral law or moral code. So, if, number one, we're not simply finding faults in Christians, and number two, we're not saying that only Christians can be hypocrites, then what specifically is at the heart of the objection to Christian hypocrisy? Well, I think the clue comes from the the root of the word itself. So it's a Greek word, you might have heard that. And originally, it was probably around well before Jesus' time in the ancient Greek world, maybe as far back as the 3rd or 4th century BC. And the word simply means actor. It was the word for the ancient Greek actors. And specifically, ancient Greek actors would wear masks during their performances. In fact, you could see a couple behind me here and Jesus is taking this word he knows what it means I think and he's taking it very specifically and applying it to these religious people that he's talking to I think what he's saying is what I can't stand is mask wearing actors people who pretend to be religious by putting a mask on by conforming their external appearances for an audience when actually what's inside is something very different And Jesus isn't just mildly perturbed by this. He he hates it. He really does. You have to look in Matthew 23. For 38 verses, Jesus absolutely lambasts religious, self-righteous hypocrisy. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite of his day. Let me just read you some of the highlights, as it were, of what he says. Seven times he says, "'Woe to you, you hypocrites!' He calls them serpents, a brood of vipers. He compares them to whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside and inside contain death and filth and hypocrisy. These are strong words. It's mask-wearing hypocrisy that Jesus objects to. A lack of authenticity and openness. Now hear me, it's not getting it wrong that he objects to. Not at all people who knew they were far from perfect and acknowledged it, only met with incredible, off-the-scale kindness and compassion and gentleness and forgiveness from Jesus. It's refusing to acknowledge our spiritual sickness and then using religious or moral behaviour to mask it is what Jesus really objects to. So, what's the way forward, point three? What's the way forward when it comes to condemning judgmentalism and to mask wearing hypocrisy. Well Jesus closely associates the two together that when you read what he says he, he often will attack both if you like he closely associates the two together. He understood they were both symptoms of the same problem. You see a, a Christian who is self-righteous and condemning or is a mask wearing hypocrite hasn't understood the gospel or more subtly perhaps, and I think this is a danger for all Christians and all churches, has just moved one or two clicks away from the gospel. What they've bought into or slipped into is the idea that Christianity is basically a form of moral improvement, that I am right with God because of my right behaviour. And that, of course, leads to feelings of superiority, especially towards those who don't behave in the same way, who don't share your views on right behavior. And then that superiority will lead to condemnation. And that condemnation can even lead to oppression and abuse. And that, I think, is what Jesus is criticizing so fiercely. Remember, the people he criticizes, they pray, they give to the poor, they seek to live according to the Bible. But he knows that they do so in order to receive acclaim and power. He knows they do so because they believe they can earn leverage over others and even God because of their spiritual performance. And that, he knows, is what causes them to feel superior, to act in a judgmental, condemning fashion. And also, that's what causes them to wear a mask. Because if your sense of value and worth comes from maintaining a high moral standard, when you dip below that high moral standard, as all of us do, You had no choice but to wear a mask to pretend that you still do meet the high moral standard if that's where your worth and value come from. But if, however, the essence of Christianity is salvation by grace, by which we mean you are right with God and loved by God, not because of what you've done but because of what Christ has done for you. If that's what Christianity is, then that is deeply humbling leaves no room for self-righteousness. Your best moral efforts are utterly feeble in the sight of a perfectly holy God. You have no reason then, surely, to feel superior or self-righteous or to cast judgment. How could you? In fact, when you've experienced the kindness and the acceptance of God as a gift, then you just want that same kindness and acceptance to go to others. That becomes your default position. When you apply the gospel to your heart, kindness becomes your default position. And listen, history is littered with examples of self-righteous and hypocritical Christians causing damage. But it's also littered with examples of Christians who understood the gospel, believed the gospel, applied the gospel to their heart, and let that same kindness and love work through them towards other people. Many, many examples of that throughout history. William Wilberforce and his friends bringing slavery to an end in the 18th century. Martin Luther King bringing segregation to an end in the southern states of America. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. Look at the orphanages and the schools and the hospitals all around the world. Because Christians understood the gospel, believed the gospel, applied its kindness and its grace to their heart, and then were able to apply the same kindness, the same grace to other people. And equally, when you've understood the gospel, you have no reason to wear a mask. Apostle Paul in Romans 5, I think, puts it perfectly when he says, basically, Christ loved you enough to die for you whilst you were still a sinner. The inference being, if he loved you then, before you were exploring or seeking him, perhaps, for example, when you were at your hypocritical, judgmental, or worse, if he loved you then why would you wear a mask in front of him now? And of course, if you know that you are both fully known in all your detail and fully loved by the creator of the universe, then why would you wear a mask in front of anyone else? Listen, I I do really get why people would think that the answer to self-righteous, condemning, hypocritical Christianity is to reject Christianity. I get that. But I want to suggest that the Christianity not only offers in Jesus Christ the best critique of itself, it also offers the solution. Jesus Christ, the gospel. I want to help us to respond and reflect in these next few moments. I wonder whether Jamie and the band could help us to do that with, with singing and with worship. I just want to pose a couple of questions if you are a believer in the gospel, as many of us are. And there would be a horrible irony if these questions came across as condemning. <laughs> this is an amazing community to be part of. It is an amazing community that does demonstrate and exemplify much of the vision that I think Tim Keller was putting before churches. So these questions are not meant at all to condemn. They're just meant to help. So question one is, do you have a Condemning judgmental streak that, that lurks at all, as I discovered in the supermarket that I did. King Church, let's not be ruthless with anyone else's sin. Let's be ruthless with our own. Jesus does not condemn you. But he invites you this morning to receive afresh this very same forgiveness that He won for you at the cross. Second question: are you wearing a mask? We've talked for a number of months now about this being an authentic community, followers of Christ, people able to explore Christ, become followers of Christ, and grow in being an authentic follower of Christ. People like that don't mask struggles. They do exactly, authentically, what the Bible says in James 5, 16. They confess their sins to one another, and they know the healing, forgiveness of God. I think this is a good community to be open and honest and authentic. Not perfect, but a good one. It might be this morning that you need to follow what the Bible says in James 5.16 and and grab someone that you know and trust he knows for you and take the mask off. Confess. No healing forgiveness. There's all kinds of other aspects of the church communities. Life group leaders, cluster leaders, Paul and myself as pastors. I know Patrick, who leads the men's ministry here, about to bring in a kind of mentoring scheme into the men's ministry. And I know Becca's heart, who leads the women's ministry, is to have lots and lots of opportunities to build community and make authentic, tangible, trustworthy friendships. There are opportunities, I believe, in the life of this community to take the mask off. I can't promise that if you do, there is not collateral damage. There usually is. But what I can promise is that when you do that in loving community, that's where life is to be found. Life is not to be found with a religious moral mask, attending meetings, saying the right thing, but masking struggles. That's not where life is to be found. It saps the life from you. The abundant life that Jesus promised is to be found in taking the mask off, confessing, being open, real, honest. That's where healing is. That's where forgiveness is. That's where growth and transformation and changes. And what about if you're far more skeptical about the claims of the Christian faith and the gospel? You're exploring this stuff, and maybe even it's a, the primary objection you have. Maybe you've given up on Christ, and the reason you give up on Christ is because of the church. And you wouldn't be alone, sadly. One of my uh, favourite songs is called Lover of the Light by Mumford & Sons. I don't know if you know it or not. But let's say you don't know it and I'm telling you all about it and I'm telling you it's an amazing song, you'll love it. Marcus Mumford's lyrics are really interesting and Winston Marshall on the banjo, it's just brilliant. You've got to hear this song, you're going to love it. And then you hear that the school down the road, they're having a music night, sixth form, talent show, they're playing all kinds of music and you hear that one of the bands is going to play Mumford & Sons, Lover of the Lights." you think i go along and watch that you get there, you're on the front row you Think I can't wait to hear this song that Philip's been banging on about and this sixth form band come on and they absolutely butcher the song it's terrible listen there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians playing a terrible rendition of who Jesus is And I just would say, don't be put off by those of us who have failed. Who have acted hypocritically or judgmentally. Don't be put off by the church. Explore Jesus Christ, the one who has failed no one, ever. Christ, the one who knows what it is to be abused by religious folk. Jesus Christ, the one who knows what it is to be unjustly condemned and judged. The one who knows that all of us have hypocrisy and judgmentalism lurking in us somewhere and the one who died that we might know forgiveness for it and be brought into the loving arms of God. Don't give up on Jesus. Explore Jesus. Let's stand. I'll pray and let's reflect and respond as we sing. Lord Jesus, we recognise that you are not surprised that we object to Christians being hypocritical and judgmental. We realise that you objected to it first, and very strongly. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you didn't just object to it, you dealt with it. You diagnosed all of us as having hypocrisy and judgmentalism lurking within us. You dealt with it. You died for it. You rose again for it to award us the results of your death on the cross. And so we say, make us a church that truly reflects you. Truly reflects you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. We say, lead us on. And we're going to focus on you and your amazing gospel. Amen.